For many things in life, it takes time and effort before you can see meaningful improvement. But luckily for us, eating better is easy with Factor's delicious ready-to-eat meals. Every meal from Factor is fresh, never frozen, and is chef-crafted and ready to go in just two minutes. There are over 35 different options to choose from every week, and it doesn't just stop at lunch or dinner, they also have a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Truly every meal I've had from Factor has been delicious, but most importantly for me, it's beyond easy with no cooking or prep and especially no cleanup. Plus Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved, so I'm saving money and eating healthier even on the days when I don't feel like cooking. If you'd like to get started today and get after your goals, head to factormeals.com lightspeed50 and use code lightspeed50 to get 50% off. That's code LIGHTSPEED50 at factormeals.com slash LIGHTSPEED50 to get 50% off. Who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Lightspeed. Hello there, and welcome to the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Kincaid, hunkered over a microphone in what was once a well-appointed office. Now it's a staging area filled with boxes. Big month for me, I'm three weeks shy of a relocation. And this here is the first podcast for the 27th issue of Lightspeed. 27 is a nine number, which means that numerologically it's obligated to be cool. So let's roll with it. Our first science fiction offering for the August issue is The Bookmaking Habits of Select Species by Ken Liu. The story is read for you by Stefan Rudnicki. Ken Liu is an author and translator of speculative fiction as well as a lawyer and programmer. His fiction has appeared in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Asimov's Analog, Clark's World, Lightspeed, and Strange Horizons, among other places. He has won a Nebula and been nominated for the Hugo and Sturgeon Awards. He lives with his family near Boston, Massachusetts. Well, that's a wrap for this week's intro, so without further ado, let's make the jump to Lightspeed. The Bookmaking Habits of Select Species by Ken Liu There is no definitive census of all the intelligent species in the universe. Not only are there perennial arguments about what qualifies as intelligence, but each moment and everywhere civilizations rise and fall, much as the stars are born and die. Time devours all. 
Yet every species has its unique way of passing on its wisdom through the ages, its way of making thoughts visible, tangible, frozen for a moment like a bulwark against the irresistible tide of time. Everyone makes books. The Alations It is said by some that writing is just visible speech, but we know such views are parochial. A musical people, the Alations write by scratching their thin, hard proboscis across an impressionable surface, such as a metal tablet covered by a thin layer of wax or hardened clay. Wealthy Alations sometimes wear a nib made of precious metals on the tip of the nose. The writer speaks his thoughts as he writes, causing the proboscis to vibrate up and down as it etches a groove in the surface. To read a book inscribed this way, an Alation places his nose into the groove and drags it through. The delicate proboscis vibrates in sympathy with the waveform of the groove, and a hollow chamber in the Alation skull magnifies the sound. In this manner, the voice of the writer is recreated. The Alations believe that they have a writing system superior to all others. Unlike books written in alphabets, syllabaries, or logograms, an Alation book captures not only words, but also the writer's tone, voice, inflection, emphasis, intonation, rhythm. It is simultaneously a score and a recording. A speech sounds like a speech, a lament, a lament, and a story recreates perfectly the teller's breathless excitement. For the Alations, reading is literally hearing the voice of the past. But there is a cost to the beauty of the Alation book. Because the act of reading requires physical contact with the soft, malleable surface each time a text is read, it is also damaged and some aspects of the original irretrievably lost. Copies made of more durable materials inevitably fail to capture all the subtleties of the writer's voice and are thus shunned. In order to preserve their literary heritage, the Alations have to lock away their most precious manuscripts in forbidding libraries where few are granted access. Ironically, the most important and beautiful works of Alation writers are rarely read, but are known only through interpretations made by scribes who attempt to reconstruct the original in new books after hearing the source read at special ceremonies. For the most influential works, Hundreds, thousands of interpretations exist in circulation, and they in turn are interpreted and proliferate through new copies. The Alation scholars spend much of their time debating the relative authority of competing versions and inferring, based on the multiplicity of imperfect copies, the imagined voice of their antecedent, an ideal book uncorrupted by readers. The Quatsoli the Quatsoli do not believe that thinking and writing are different things at all. They are a race of mechanical beings. It is not known if they began as mechanical creations of another older species, if they are shells hosting the souls of a once organic race, or if they evolved on their own from inert matter. A Quatsoli's body is made out of copper and shaped like an hourglass. Their planet, tracing out a complicated orbit between three stars, is subjected to immense tidal forces that churn and melt its metal core, radiating heat to the surface in the form of steamy geysers and lakes of lava. 
A quatzoli ingests water into its bottom chamber a few times a day, where it slowly boils and turns into steam as the quatzoli periodically dips itself into the bubbling lava lakes. The steam passes through a regulating valve, the narrow part of the hourglass, into the upper chamber, where it powers the various gears and levers that animate the mechanical creature. At the end of the work cycle, the steam cools and condenses against the inner surface of the upper chamber. The droplets of water flow along grooves etched into the copper until they are collected into a steady stream, and this stream then passes through a porous stone rich in carbonate minerals before being disposed of outside the body. This stone is the seat of the Quazzoli mind. The stone organ is filled with thousands, millions of intricate channels, forming a maze that divides the water into countless tiny parallel flows that drip, trickle, wind around each other to represent simple values, which together coalesce into streams of consciousness and emerge as currents of thought. Over time, the pattern of water flowing through the stone changes. Older channels are worn down and disappear or become blocked and closed off. And so some memories are forgotten. New channels are created connecting previously separated flows, an epiphany, and the departing water deposits new mineral growths at the far youngest end of the stone, where the tentative, fragile, miniature stalactites are the newest, freshest thoughts. When a Quatsoli parent creates a child in the forge, its final act is to gift the child with a sliver of its own stone mind, a package of received wisdom and ready thoughts that allow the child to begin its life. As the child accumulates experiences, its stone brain grows around that core, becoming ever more intricate and elaborate, until it can, in turn, divide its mind for the use of its children. And so the Quatsoli are themselves books. Each carries within its stone brain a written record of the accumulated wisdom of all its ancestors, the most durable thoughts that have survived millions of years of erosion. Each mind grows from a seed inherited through the millennia, and every thought leaves a mark that can be read and seen. Some of the more violent races of the universe, such as the Hespero, once delighted in extracting and collecting the stone brains of the Quazzoli. Still displayed in their museums and libraries, the stones, often labeled simply ancient books, no longer mean much to most visitors. Because they could separate thought from writing, the conquering races were able to leave a record that is free of blemishes and thoughts that would have made their descendants shudder. But the stone brains remain in their glass cases, waiting for water to flow through the dry channels so that once again they can be read and live. The Hespero The Hespero once wrote with strings of symbols that represented sounds in their speech, but now no longer write at all. They have always had a complicated relationship with writing, the Hespero. Their great philosophers distrusted writing. A book, they thought, was not a living mind, yet pretended to be one. It gave sententious pronouncements, made moral judgments, described purported historical facts, or told exciting stories. Yet it could not be interrogated like a real person, could not answer its critics, 
or justify its accounts. The Hespero wrote down their thoughts reluctantly, only when they could not trust the vagaries of memory. They far preferred to live with the transience of speech, oratory, debate. At one time the Hespero were a fierce and cruel people. As much as they delighted in debates, they loved even more the glories of war. Their philosophers justified their quests and slaughter in the name of forward motion. War was the only way to animate the ideals embedded in the static text passed down through the ages, to ensure that they remained true, and to refine them for the future. An idea was worth keeping only if it led to victory. When they finally discovered the secret of mind storage and mapping, the Hespero stopped writing altogether. In the moments before the deaths of great kings, generals, philosophers, their minds are harvested from the failing bodies. The paths of every charged ion, every fleeting electron, every strange and charming quark are captured and cast in crystalline matrices. These minds are frozen forever in that moment of separation from their owners. At this point, the process of mapping begins. Carefully, meticulously, a team of master cartographers, assisted by numerous apprentices, trace out each of the countless minuscule tributaries, impressions, and hunches that commingle into the flow and ebb of thought, until they gather into the tidal forces the ideas that made their originators so great. Once the mapping is done, they begin the calculations to project the continuing trajectories of the traced-out paths so as to simulate the next thought. The charting of the courses taken by the great frozen minds into the vast, dark terra incognita of the future consumes the efforts of the most brilliant scholars of the Hespero. They devote the best years of their lives to it, and when they die, their minds, in turn, are charted indefinitely into the future as well. In this way, the great minds of the Hespero do not die. To converse with them, the Hespero only have to find the answers on the mind maps. They thus no longer have a need for books, as they used to make them, which were merely dead symbols, for the wisdom of the past is always with them, still thinking, still guiding, still exploring. And as more and more of their time and resources are devoted to the simulation of ancient minds, the Hespero have also grown less warlike, much to the relief of their neighbors. Perhaps it is true that some books do have a civilizing influence. The Taltoks The Taltoks read books they did not write. They are creatures of energy. Ethereal, flickering patterns of shifting field potentials, the Taltoks are strung out among the stars like ghostly ribbons. When the starships of the other species pass through, the ships barely feel a gentle tug. The Taltoks claim that everything in the universe can be read. Each star is a living text, where the massive convection currents of superheated gas tell an epic drama, with the star spots serving as punctuation, the coronal loops extended figures of speech, and the flares emphatic passages that ring true in the deep silence of cold space. Each planet contains a poem, written out in the bleak, jagged, staccato rhythm of bare, rocky cores, or the lyrical, lingering, rich rhymes, both masculine and feminine, of swirling gas giants. And then there are the planets with life, 
constructed like intricate jeweled clockwork, containing a multitude of self-referential literary devices that echo and re-echo without end. But it is the event horizon around a black hole where the tall talks claim the greatest books are to be found. When a tall talk is tired of browsing through the endless universal library, she drifts toward a black hole. As she accelerates toward the point of no return, the streaming gamma rays and X-rays unveil more and more of the ultimate mystery for which all the other books are but glosses. The book reveals itself to be ever more complex, more nuanced, and just as she is about to be overwhelmed by the immensity of the book she is reading, she realizes with a start that time has slowed down to a standstill, and she will have eternity to read it as she falls forever toward a center that she will never reach. Finally, a book has triumphed over time. Of course, no Taltok has ever returned from such a journey, and many dismiss the discussion of reading black holes as pure myth. Indeed, many consider the Taltoks to be nothing more than illiterate frauds who rely on mysticism to disguise their ignorance. Still, some continue to seek out the Taltoks as interpreters of the books of nature they claim to see all around us. The interpretations thus produced are numerous and conflicting, and lead to endless debates over the book's content and especially authorship. The Karu E. In contrast to the Taltoks who read books at the grandest scale, the Karu E are readers and writers of the minuscule. Small in stature, the Karu E each measure no larger than the period at the end of this sentence. In their travels, they seek from others only to acquire books that have lost all meaning and could no longer be read by the descendants of the authors. Due to their unimpressive size, few races perceive the Karu'i as threats, and they are able to obtain what they want with little trouble. For instance, at the Karu'i's request, the people of Earth gave them tablets and vases incised with linear A, bundles of knotted strings called quippus, as well as an assortment of ancient magnetic disks and cubes that they no longer knew how to decipher. The Hespero, after they had ceased their wars of conquest, gave the Karui some ancient stones that they believed to be books looted from the Quatsoli. And even the reclusive Untu, who write with fragrances and flavors, allowed them to have some old bland books whose scents were too faint to be read. The Karui make no effort at deciphering their acquisitions. They seek only to use the old books, now devoid of meaning, as a blank space upon which to construct their sophisticated Baroque cities. The incised lines on the vases and tablets were turned into thoroughfares, whose walls were packed with honeycombed rooms that elaborate on the pre-existing outlines with fractal beauty. The fibers in the knotted ropes were teased apart, rewoven, and retied at the microscopic level, until each original knot had been turned into a Byzantine complex of thousands of smaller knots, each a kiosk suitable for a Karui merchant just starting out, or a warren of rooms for a young Karui family. The magnetic discs, on the other hand, were used as arenas of entertainment, where the young and adventurous careened across their surface during the day, delighting in the shifting push and pull of local magnetic potential. 
At night, the place was lit up by tiny lights that followed the flow of magnetic forces, and long-dead data illuminated the dance of thousands of young people searching for love, seeking to connect. Yet it is not accurate to say that the Karui do no interpretation at all. When members of the species that had given these artifacts to the Karui come to visit, inevitably they feel a sense of familiarity with the Karui's new construction. For example, when representatives from Earth were given a tour of the great market built in the Quipu, they observed, via the use of a microscope, bustling activity, thriving trade, and an incessant murmur of numbers, accounts, values, currency. One of the Earth's representatives, a descendant of the people who had once knotted the string books, was astounded. Though he could not read them, he knew that the Quipus had been made to keep track of accounts and numbers, to tally up taxes and ledgers. Or take the example of the Quatsoli, who found the Karoui repurposing one of the lost Quatsoli stone brains as a research complex. The tiny chambers and channels where ancient watery thoughts once flowed were now laboratories, libraries, teaching rooms, and lecture halls, echoing with new ideas. The Quatsoli delegation had come to recover the mind of their ancestor, but left convinced that all was as it should be. It is as if the Karui were able to perceive an echo of the past, and unconsciously, as they built upon a palimpsest of books written long ago and long forgotten, chanced to stumble upon an essence of meaning that could not be lost, no matter how much time had passed. They read without knowing they are reading. Pockets of sentience glow in the cold, deep void of the universe like bubbles in a vast, dark sea. Tumbling, shifting, joining, and breaking, they leave behind spiraling phosphorescent trails, each as unique as a signature, as they push and rise towards an unseen surface. Everyone makes books. Welcome back. I think my favorite species described was the Toltox. All things in the universe can be read. I enjoyed the description of how they're said to end when they finally get tired of reading the universe and they drift into a black hole. The greatest book of all. You know, late at night when I look at the stars, I see one of two things, depending on my mood. The first is a cold, dead, unforgiving place. One that's so vast that just to ponder it, scales my existence, human existence, everything I know, into a kind of hopeless triviality. The second is of a feeling of privilege to be part of this huge, amazing thing of which every small part on some level is connected. It's one of awe and wonder at the possibilities of what might be out there. This story definitely elicited the latter. I hope you enjoyed the story. If so, and you find the time, please go to our website at lightspeedmagazine.com and leave a comment. Just click on Fiction, find the story, and then leave a comment there. Or if you'd like to help spread the word, go to iTunes, find the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast, and leave a review or rating there. And if you haven't already subscribed to Lightspeed Magazine, please take a moment to consider it and check out our many options at lightspeedmagazine.com slash subscribe. Well, thanks for listening. That's all for now. Cheers from all of us at Lightspeed Magazine.
Wander with us into a world of magic. Do you lack magic? Ever since I was born, I could hear the spirits of the other world. Where old stories take on a new life. If you break even one of these conditions, the consequence is death. And the world is teeming with possibilities. It's midnight, girls! They're here! Get ready to change! Well, for the last time, we're not kissing, Fritz! Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with as you've never heard them before. You are no more than a demon! Okay, Gown. Let's do this. And reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. Ready for your next adventure? Then we'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales.